and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Peter Adamson, Professor of Late Ancient and Arabic Philosophy at the LMU in Munich. He's also the host of the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps podcast. We will discuss his essay, Taklid, Authority and in the Intellectual Elite in the Islamic World, which he will deliver as a lecture at Notre Dame uh, in the near future. So welcome to the show, Peter. Hey, thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I mean, I've been a fan of your podcast for a really long time. Um, and at some point, I look forward to listening to all the episodes without any gaps. But I'm going to have to set aside a fair amount of time for that because there's so many of them. Yeah, sorry about that. It's, it's really <laughs> not my fault that there's a lot of history of philosophy. Yeah, well, if anyone's going to be complaining about the number of podcast episodes someone generates, it probably shouldn't be me. That's true. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm number like 5 billion, right? <laughs> you got me beat by a long shot. Um, so, so, Peter, I, I will confess that, you know, before reading your essay, I knew very little about Islamic jurisprudence. I mean, I've heard, I've read a couple papers and seen a few presentations. Um, and I really felt like there's this amazing amount of information and ideas packed into a short, a short essay. So, I mean, I was wondering just to kind of situate the project for, or this particular element of the bigger project, which maybe we can talk about later, um, for listeners, if you could talk a little bit about the sort of time periods and regions that are reflected in the Islamic philosophers or Arabic philosophers that you're talking about in this particular essay. Sure. Well, um, one good date to have in mind here is 622 AD, because that's when the Islamic calendar begins. So that's kind of year zero or year one in the Islamic calendar. That marks the so-called emigration or hijra from, of Muhammad and his followers from Mecca to Medida. And so whenever you think about Islam, you have to always think you're starting from the early 7th century. And as far as philosophy goes, people usually start telling the story from about the 9th century AD, which would be the 3rd century in the Islamic calendar, because this is when they start translating Greek works of philosophy and science into Arabic, which is usually considered to be the start of the philosophical tradition in Arabic. It's more complicated than that, but that's probably good enough for us. And Actually, it turns out that a lot of the developments that are relevant to Islamic law happen sort of close to being in parallel with that. So around the same time, you have the collection of so-called hadith, which means basically reports about things that the Prophet Muhammad said and did. So there are scholars who actually travel around the Islamic world collecting information about Muhammad's life. The idea being that everything that he said and did might be relevant for setting the norms of Islamic belief and practice. And by the 10th century, you have the establishment of the, or the around the 10th century, 9th, 10th century, you have the establishment of four main legal schools within Islamic law. So in a way, you can see this kind of uh, flourishing intellectual culture of the 9th and 10th century, which is often considered to be a kind of high point of classical Islam, 
as including both philosophy and law almost in parallel. And in fact, you could even throw a third thing in there, which is Islamic theology, which also starts to become much more systematic at the same time we have uh, start to have extensive textual evidence for Islamic theology from around that time. In terms of geography, the Islamic conquests spread the new faith across a vast terrain very, very quickly. So by the time all of those developments I just described happen, even though we're only, you know, three centuries into Islam, we were already talking about the Islamic empire pretty much its full extent. So all the way from um, Northern Africa and even up into Spain uh, in the West, all the way over to basically the um, border of India in the East. So we're talking about in Central Asia, Iraq, uh, Iran, obviously what we nowadays call the Middle East usually, and Northern Africa, and also the Iberian Peninsula. So it's a huge geographical terrain, much bigger than Latin Christian Europe, obviously. Um, you've got Greek-speaking Byzantium as a buffer state in between the Islamic world and Latin Christendom. Um, so you're talking about a, a huge, massive empire. Um, I mean, a, a good a good way to think about it might be that we're thinking about something that's sort of on the order of the Roman Empire, but even bigger. Mm-hmm. Well, so you talk about many different schools of Islamic thought in in the essay, but they all uh, the bulk of the essay re- revolves around really kind of two kind of core concepts of taklid and I'm going to ijtihad. Ijtihad, uh, yeah. Ijtihad. So I, I was wondering, could could you kind of give a in a nutshell, like what, what are those two concepts sort of, what do they stand for and how are they different from each other? Yeah, this is really what got me interested in this particular topic. Um, so taklid is a, a very useful word, which I wish existed in English because I think we could use it all the time, not just in legal contexts, but in other contexts as well. It's hard to translate actually, uh, in part because it's not clear how pejorative a translation we want. But people often go for a very pejorative translation and will translate it as something like blind obedience to authority or uncritically accepting authoritative belief or something. So again, the word is taklid. And the idea behind it is that you're bound to someone else's teaching. So for example, to use a non-legal example, um, you might say, watch a uh, TV show every night and the TV show has some political commentator on it and you like this political commentator. So when you are asked for your own opinions about politics, you just repeat whatever that commentator said. That would be a great example of taklid. The term that's often contrasted to that originally in legal context, but then more broadly in Islamic culture is ijtihad. And that actually comes from a verb meaning to give effort or so to exert yourself. And in fact, the better known word jihad comes from the same root. So jihad literally just means struggle. In other words, a kind of effortful struggle. Uh, Ijtihad means something slightly different. It means putting effort into making up your own mind. At least in this context, that is what it means. So you can see why taklid and ijtihad would be pretty close to being antonyms, right? So taklid is when you believe whatever you believe by following the lead of someone else. And ijtihad is when you form a belief by putting individual effort into effectively figuring it out for yourself. 
And um, in the legal context, the, the contrast is really about how jurists arrive at judgments. So if they go with taklid, it means that they effectively are just following precedent, right? So they look at what other jurists have decided and take that opinion. And by the way, this is one reason why you might not want such a pejorative translation, right? Because if it just means precedent, I don't have to tell you and your listeners that precedent is not an entirely bad thing, right? So in fact, it's something that uh, sh should be respected in most legal traditions, including the Islamic legal tradition. So if taklid just means precedent, then it doesn't sound nearly as bad as blind obedience to authority, right? Um, but in any case, you could think about taklid as a kind of following of precedent, whereas ijtihad would be the jurist basically sitting down and trying to figure out the right answer, the right judgment for themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, and from your essay, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, it, it sounded like early in the period you're discussing, there was sort of a flowering of ijtihad, like a sort of a way of, uh, or like a historical moment in which a lot of sort of lawmaking or law, like jurisprudential thinking was taking place that sort of gave way to a transition to to kind of a, a, a move toward sort of a more taklid oriented way of thinking about jurisprudence. Is that like a historically accurate way of thinking about what happened or? That is a much discussed question. Everyone would agree with the first part of what you said, which is that early on there is a flowering of kind of independently minded juridical theorizing. And in a way you can see why there would almost have to be because there are no up and running legal systems that you could give taklid to, right? So before you have it can have taklid, in other words, before you can follow the authority of someone, you need to have some legal authorities on the ground to follow, right? And so it's really not until these four schools develop that you have the possibility of jurists just kind of doggedly working within these traditions. Hmm. Um, but there's a, then a big dispute about whether or not jurists in later periods effectively abandoned the practice of ijtihad and started just doing taklid all the time. So there's a famous paper that I, I cite in my paper called is the, It Was the Gate of Ijtihad Closed, which is basically arguing against what had formerly been a kind of um, a common opinion among scholars that pretty soon after the kind of high point classical period that I was just describing, jurists stopped engaging in ijtihad completely. And so they talk about the gate of ijtihad being closed. In other words, jurists are no longer allowed to think for themselves, right? And scholars have criticized this and pointed out that there's a lot of evidence that ijtihad continues afterwards. So for example, um, you get people saying things like every age needs its own mujtahid. A mujtahid is just someone who engages in ijtihad, right? So every age requires an independently minded jurist. But if, then again, if you think about that, like what, we only need one? <laughs> so that doesn't sound like there's a lot of people thinking for themselves. So it may have been that ijtihad was always a possibility and that people who wanted to put themselves forward as particularly creative or brilliant jurists sort of claimed the right to engage in this independent thought and effectively go back to the original source of his, sources of Islamic law and devise new kinds of judgments. So that was probably always a possibility, but it may be that most practicing jurists would not have dreamt of doing that and were basically 
following the teachings of their school. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, setting aside the historical accuracy of this sort of description of the closing of the door and so on, I mean, it seems like at a certain point, these schools of jurisprudence at least made the relationship between Taklid and Ijtihad um, controversial, right? It was like, it seems like it was kind of driving a kind of intellectual ferment in how jurisprudence should think about sort of lawmaking and the application of the law. How did that happen and why? Well, I think the real question is, um, you know, if you are going to engage in ijtihad, then on the basis of what authority are you doing that? Well, your own authority, right? Almost by definition, because the whole idea is you're putting your own individual effort into coming up with a judgment. And so this this obviously raises a question of why a given jurist would have the right to do that. But on the other hand, equally obviously, there are some good answers you might give to that. The most obvious kind of answer would be, well, what if I look through the legal literature that's available and I don't find an answer to my question? Uh, so one kind of case that comes up here is what happens if there is a new situation which jurists had just, have just never had to rule on before. Uh, a nice case would be when coffee and tobacco are introduced to the citizens of the Ottoman Empire, and it turns out they really, really like it, uh, as many other people do, or they really like both tobacco and coffee. And uh, so jurists are suddenly having to decide whether these things are permitted within Islamic law. And there, you, in a way, you're almost forced to engage in ijtihad, right? Because you, you can't just look at some previous ruling on coffee if there has never been one. So that's a kind of clear case where um, a limited kind of ijtihad would be required. Um, the other thing that winds up happening is that they start coming up with classifications of different sort of levels of jurist. And this is why the, I use the word elitism in the title of my piece, because I think that in Islamic jurisprudence, there developed this very articulate theory of a juridical elite who were defined by their ability and their right to engage in ijtihad. And then the elite are followed by other jurists who either engage in complete taklid. So in other words, they just follow what other jurists have said or they maybe engage in something that's sort of in between. So one thing they talk about is so-called ijtihad within a school. So the idea there would be that you're a member of a certain legal tradition and you do make your own judgments, but always with reference to other things that have been decided within your tradition. So this would basically be the idea, well, I have the principles of my legal school here I have a problem that needs a solution, so I apply the principles of my school to this solution, but I don't ever justify why the principles of my school are the right principles. It's just the tradition I belong to. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, and actually, I think that that might sound to a lot of. I mean, I'm guessing because I don't know that much about real, like law as it's practiced today, but I'm guessing that a lot of jurists might recognize that as the way they actually proceed nowadays, right? So they have to make a decision. It's not immediately clear what the decision should be, but they're not going to go back to like the constitution or whatever the fundamental legal principles are every single time they make a decision, right? 
Yeah. I mean, because reading the paper, I got the impression it's like in a lot of ways, Ijtihad, at least in some iterations, sounds a lot like analogical reasoning of the kind we do in common law decision making all the time. Right. And in a lot of ways, the kind of reasoning within a school reminds me of kind of thinking about like canons of construction or something, for example, like sort of like heuristics for thinking about how legal decision making should should happen. Is that a kind of at least a roughly a fair way of describing what or at least some of the things that were kind of taking place? Yeah, I think so. That's actually really insightful that you bring up analogy because one of the primary, although certainly not the only way of engaging in jihad or really legal reasoning in general is called analogy. So in Arabic, kias. And that means that's often translated as analogy, but what it specifically means is you have a judgment that's well-defined for a certain case and you transfer it to another case while giving an explanation of why the transfer is legitimate. So the classic example, almost to the point of cliche, is you have a rule that says that that wine made from grapes is forbidden in Islam. And then you have to decide whether wine made from dates, because apparently you can make alcoholic beverages out of dates. Uh, I've never had this. but So you have wine made from dates as well. And there's no explicit command in the scripture or in the reports about the Prophet Muhammad that this should be um, forbidden. Mm. And so, so, and one uh, school of thought would be to say, well, look, if it's not explicitly forbidden, then it's allowed. So anything that's not explicitly forbidden is permitted, but very few jurists would say that. <laughs> Um, most of them would engage in some form of an analogical reasoning and they would say, well, look, if, if grape wine is forbidden, then date wine must be as well. And then, and now we start to get into the real philosophical aspect of it. So why, like, why is that trans transfer of the judgment permitted? And the usual answer they would give is that there is a basis for the transfer, which they call a cause or a, a reason for the judgment. Um, in this case, it would be intoxication. So it's because grape wine is intoxicating that it's forbidden. And that's why any other beverage that is intoxicating will also be forbidden by analogy. Right. And so you can see how this, um, on the one hand makes sense, but on the other hand, seems like it could open license to pretty like, sort of free for all of legal reasoning where, people start coming up with hypotheses about why various things were permitted or forbidden or obligatory, uh, et cetera, and start sort of coming up with proposals about, you know, oh, here's this thing that's forbidden. It must be because of such and such. And so we should forbid this other thing too. And other people who don't want to forbid that other thing saying, no, no, that's not a good, that's not good reasoning. So for uh, actually we could go back to the example of coffee, right? Mm. So if grape wine is um, forbidden, does that mean that coffee should be forbidden as well? Well, yes, if whatever the reason why grape wine was grape wine was permitted is also operative in the case of coffee, but if not, then not. 
and this is the kind of debates they get into. Mm -hmm. Well, and so I wanted to return to this concept of epistemic elitism as well, because it seems like it played out differently in the different schools of thought you describe in the paper. And and one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that it was like different schools of thought seem to have different perspectives on sort of like what Taklid was, sort of what the sort of normative issues related to thinking things through as talk lead were and sort of like for whom talk lead was acceptable or not acceptable if anyone is that right and sort of like how did that happen yeah that in a way is the the key kind of uh contrast that i want to draw in the paper especially in the juridical side of things uh, between some jurists and also theologians who think that some kinds of ijtihad are really to be encouraged for absolutely everybody. This is maybe not so much going to happen in law because they don't, obviously they don't want every single Muslim trying to come up with their own legal judgments, right? Because that would be chaos. But when it comes to uh, theological judgments, then a lot of theologians, and in fact, early on, even the mainstream of theologians would say, well, look, um, it's not that every single Muslim believer needs to become a highly trained theologian. That would be ridiculous because like they don't have time, never mind ability, right? They're busy farming. They're most of them will be illiterate given the period of history we're talking about. So there's lots of reasons why not everyone can be a theologian, but maybe everyone should at least understand that the Quran gives us good reasons to believe in God. So like maybe they should at least understand for example, an argument for the existence of God. So they might say something like, um, you can show that God exists by arguing from the providential design of the universe. And every Muslim should at least be able to explain that. So that's part of what it is to be a Muslim believer. Other theologians, though, will say, no, no, that's wrong. Um, actually, it's only the elite who should engage in this kind of ijtihads, this, this sort of thinking for yourself, as we might put it. And everybody else, so they use the word amma, the, the commoners, everyone else should just engage in taklid. So they actually recommend taklid for 99.9% .9 of people while considering taklid to be completely anathema for themselves. So again, you see this really strong elitism between theologians and jurists who consider themselves to be like the top uh, kind of echelon, the intellectual scholars of Islamic society. And what marks them out is their right to do ijtihad and also their ability to do ijtihad. Everyone else is engaging in taklid. And against that, you have some people saying, no, actually, at least like for at least a few basic issues, everyone should engage in ijtihad. But of course, there's a continuum there, right? So, um, Probably no one's going to demand that everyone become a trained jurist and theologian because that would be ridiculous. But you can push more or less far in the direction of demanding that common everyday Muslim believers uh, sort of formulate an intellectual rationale for their belief. And some theologians will say, you know, if you have no kind of way of defending your belief or explaining why you believe what you believe, then you're not really a proper believer, right? Because you just believe what you believe because you were told to believe it. Um, and one worry that comes up explicitly here in the tradition is that if complete and utter taklid is 
permissible for any believer in Islam, then their belief in Islam would have exactly the same status as a taqlid believer of Christianity or Judaism or any other religion, right? And so, and their thought here is, well, um, a believer in Islam who is just an, a Muslim because their parents told them to be a Muslim but can't actually explain why Islam is a good faith to follow would have no better reason to be a Muslim than a Christian who was exactly the same, right? So effectively what they're recognizing there is that it's just a matter of luck that the Muslim is a Muslim and just a matter of bad luck that the Christian is a Christian and they, they, that, that doesn't really set well with them. So they would like to say that um, any Muslim believer should have a better reason for being a Muslim than just that they happen to get lucky and be born into the right family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was struck by that because it really seemed like there's a kind of rationalism to it that almost kind of implies that like raw faith isn't enough to justify the belief that there has to be an ability to kind of explain and rationalize why these rules are the right rules and why these principles are the right principles. Yeah, that's right. Although, I mean, the group, um, the groups we're talking about here are rational theologians. So the fact that they're highly rationalist is maybe not that surprising. What might be more surprising though, is actually, if, if you go far forward in history to the last few centuries. Um, this is not something I know a lot about, but some of what I've read about this has suggested that the groups who have gone furthest in the direction of challenging taqlid and insisting on ijtihad in matters of religion for everyday believers would actually be fundamentalist movements because they want to question the legitimacy and authority of well-established legal and religious institutions and schools in Islamic society. And they want to kind of undermine these long-standing traditions and say, no, no, we have to go back to the Quran and the Hadith and forget about these hundreds of years of legal scholarship, which is just serving to kind of keep the current elite in place. We need to sort of overthrow that and go back to the true original Islam. Uh, so for example, you, you might know the word Salafi. Mm -hmm. Uh, so this or Salafist, right? So that actually refers to the Salaf, the original generations of Muslims who are the immediate followers of Muhammad. So the Salafis are presenting themselves as following in the footsteps of not the one and a half thousand years of Islamic intellectual tradition that we've had since almost since the rise of Islam, but rather go all the way back to the very first uh, Muslims and imitate their um, teachings and uh, sort of try to, in a way, figure out what it is to be a good Muslim all over again. And so actually they are um, in a way more prone to encourage widespread or universal ijtihad than a less radical, more kind of um, traditional um, Muslim scholar might be, which might be, be in a way kind of uh surprising mm. right because it sort of, sort of suggests that the the most what we might think of as the most kind of right wing <laughs> people are the least traditional but actually uh one of the, one of the reasons i got interested in this is that i think that um if you think about like r the rise of right wing populism in the united states and europe in recent years it has the same structure yeah right? so don't listen to the new york times uh figure it out for yourself right 
So, you know, go with your gut that, that kind of like, you know, that, you know, that it's wrong that we're in the EU if you're British, mm. right? this kind of thing that don't, don't listen to the economists, don't listen to the journalists. That's the same kind of move, right? So don't engage in taklid, use ijtihad to figure out for yourself what the right answer is. Mm. And I think it's interesting that those two, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not making a value judgment on this necessarily, but I think it's interesting to observe that these that that political movement has epistemically a, a very similar structure to what we found in Islamic fundamentalism in the last couple of centuries. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm struck by the way in which, you know, what you're describing as a sort of Salafist move in some ways reminds me strongly of the sort of uh, originalist move in United States jurisprudence. And it's sort of like a conservative radicalism almost. Yes, yeah, actually, it's funny you say that because um, the figure who's often um, sort of held up as a forerunner of the modern day fundamentalist movements within Islamic law is Ibn Taymiyyah, who's he's actually from quite a while ago. So um, he's from around the time of the Mongol invasions. Um, but so he, we're talking about someone who's like numerous centuries before now, but he's a figure who's often cited by, uh, as a kind of intellectual forefather of Salafism. And when I was covering him in my podcast, I said, oh, his legal theory is basically the same as Scalia's so, <laughs> so, and has the same, is, is sort of open to the same criticism because what he said is, well, forget about the teachings of all these legal schools. Let's go back to what the ancestors say to understand directly the Quran and the Hadith, the sources of Islamic law, and we will... Uh, sort of make new judgments on that basis alone and sort of uh, get rid of these accreted layers of self-interested, self-righteous, self-justifying legal scholarship, right? Um, and so effectively what he's saying is the right decision is whatever the immediate followers of Muhammad thought it would be, right? And of course, that's what Scalia said, right? So that whatever the constitution means is whatever the people who were alive at the time the constitution were written was written would have thought it meant. This is a very, again a very similar move structurally speaking. Mm -hmm. Well, so just very briefly, like the different schools of thought and the different perspectives on the relationship between taklid and ijtihad during the period you're describing were those kinds of theological and jurisprudential differences purely kind of intellectual differences, or did they have political salience as well? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that the elitism move is always going to be connected with a kind of claim to power for the so-called ulama. So that, that literally means the people who are learned or the people who know. So basically the scholarly class who are often people who are well-trained in law and theology actually. So these are, I mean, we've been talking about jurists and theologians as if they're true groups. And although they, although they are in theory, they're often the same people. And in fact, they're often the same people who are doing philosophy as well. Um, so the idea that there's going to be a kind of privileged class of knowers at the top who will think for themselves and everyone else should just uh, go along with whatever they say that's obviously not only an epistemic claim, but a political claim, right? And here it's relevant to bear in mind that the that Islam as a religion, at least Sunni Islam, has nothing like a church or you know a papacy or 
uh, church hierarchy. Uh, there's no ecclesiastical authority in the Middle Ages, so um, you can't you can't really expect in a in a medieval Muslim society that there will be some kind of enforcement of orthodox belief from a religious political hierarchy the way that was the case in both Byzantine and Latin Christian um, culture. But by sort of asserting this right to think for themselves and uh, figure everything out on the basis of the fundamental principles of Islam, these scholars found a way to uh, sort of establish a special privileged place for themselves in society nonetheless. Uh, they didn't have a lot of success in enforcing that necessarily, except insofar as they are the judges in the law courts, right? Um, and there's a complicated relationship between this group of scholars and actual secular political rulers like various emirs, caliphs, and so on. A lot of the time, the um, the what you might think of as the military rulers, like the caliph in the ideal case, um, would actually consider this scholarly class to be a kind of um, competition to their own power. And so there's a, often a pretty fractious relationship between those two. Um, but anyway, th my point is that this claim to privileged knowledge and a kind of special right to think for oneself is a political claim as well as an epistemic claim. And similarly, as we've kind of already saw with the example of Islamic fundamentalists, to broaden the range of permitted ijtihad and to argue against taklid is in a way to question that, right? Because you're saying, well, no, actually everyone should at least take responsibility for their beliefs rather than following you guys. So you think you're so smart and maybe you are, but um, it, it's still not right for the common believer to just believe what they do believe on your say-so. We reject that. And so that in a way is a kind of counter political claim. Mm -hmm. Well, and later in your paper, you talk about a kind of Aristotelian move in Islamic jurisprudence and philosophical thought, and how that kind of put into relief, in a way, this dispute between the sort of relative legitimacy of Taklid and Ijdad. I mean, again, it's a really big idea there. But I wonder if briefly, you could just kind of like, lay out the like the basics of sort of what what happened and why that was important. Sure. Yeah. So this is another of the reasons why I got into thinking about this in the first place. There's a really striking difference between philosophy in the Islamic world and philosophy in medieval Christian cultures, which is that in the Islamic world, you have a relatively small number, but still a, a striking group of rationalists who are really, really bold in their claims about what reason and philosophy can achieve. So they will go so far as to say, look, um, philosophy is a study of the truth. And when we have philosophical demonstrations, we actually have proofs that establish what is true. Now, we know that scripture is true, but the meaning of scripture is kind of open to debate because it's a problem of interpretation and so on. There's lots of different ways of interpreting these texts. So if you want to know the true meaning of scripture, ask a philosopher, because the philosopher has an independent means to know the truth, namely through this Aristotelian demonstrative scientific method, right? Uh, so one example of the best example, actually, of someone who says this is a philosopher named Ibn Rushd, who lived in the 12th century in Spain. 
and is more commonly known as Averroes. He's famous for writing commentaries on Aristotle. And he also wrote a treatise explaining uh, this theory as a kind of a way of justifying why he and people like him, so other philosophers, would be the best possible people to interpret the meaning of Islamic law. And you're never going to find anything like that in uh, a Christian medieval culture, at least not that openly. And this has always sort of struck me, like, why do we have these open, incredibly bold rationalists in Islamic culture? And I actually always thought the main reason was something I just said a minute ago, which is there's no church hierarchy. There's no institutional authority that can come and smack these guys down. So they could just get away with saying these things that a, maybe a medieval Christian philosopher couldn't have gotten away with. But uh, that's actually a pretty unsatisfying uh, explanation. For one thing, Christian medieval philosophers got, a, got away with much more than you might think anyway. And for another thing, they, they still, even if they can get away with saying it, they need a reason to say it, right? And, it, and working on this stuff about taklid and ijtihad made me realize that actually what was going on there is that the philosophers were taking over this juridical idea about an elite who think for themselves and figure out everything on the basis of first principles. And they said, oh, yeah, we recognize that. That's us. That's what we do, but using philosophy rather than using law. And actually, um, Averroes is a great figure for me to make this case because he was a jurist as well as a philosopher. And in fact, his treatise where he lays all this out is officially at least a juridical decision. So it's called Fasil al-Makal, the decisive treatise. And the question is, what is the status of philosophy in Islam? And his answer is philosophy is obligatory in Islam for those who can do it, precisely because it is the way to understand the meaning of Islam itself, the meaning of the Islamic revelation. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, so Peter, this essay we've been talking about is only one part of a bigger project. I wonder if you could put it in a little context and talk about sort of what you want to achieve with this particular larger project. Yeah, so it's a, ideally, and I hope this will turn out, maybe listening back to this podcast in three years thinking, oh, you had all these plans that never came to fruition. But in theory, this will be a chapter in a book which is about the whole problem of belief formation and authority in medieval culture. And this would be actually be the first chapter, the stuff that we've been discussing. And from there, I want to go on and think about other related questions that arise in the context of um, medieval thinkers talking about how you should best form belief, how you should accept belief from authority under what circumstances can you do that? What kinds of authority are appropriate to use? So one obvious question, for example, is whether a Christian or Muslim or Jewish medieval thinker should be willing to accept authoritative teachings from pagan thinkers, especially Aristotle, who for them is the most important uh, philosopher. So like uh, sometimes critics of the philosophers will say, well, you guys just say whatever Aristotle said. You just follow him blindly. In fact, there are even f- figures who use the word taklid and throw it at the philosophers and say, you engage in taklid by blindly following Aristotle. And of course, they need an answer to that. And their answer better give us good rationale for why it's okay for them as adherents of, a, of an Abrahamic faith to be using 
Aristotelian ideas that were devised in a pagan context. So that's one example. I think another one of the chapters that's already written is about women thinkers in medieval culture, especially in um, Christian cultures. And there um, I'm thinking about what women did about the fact that they were kind of by definition given no authoritative status at all. So the, the mere fact of being a woman in a medieval culture is probably going to be enough to disqualify you from having anything authoritative to say about matters of religion or philosophy. And so that uh, essay is really about how women thinkers dealt with that problem. Um, another one of the things I want to talk about is how uh, reason was used to justify beliefs within one religion as opposed to another. So for example, when Muslims and Christians are arguing with each other, like Muslims are criticizing the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, then um, obviously it's no good for a Muslim to argue against a Christian by just quoting the Quran at them, right? Because the, the Christian doesn't accept the Quran as a revelation, doesn't accept it as a scriptural authority. And so they need to use some other means of convincing the Christian, or they need to use other, other principles for devising their argument. And it turns out that a lot of the time, what they'll do is they'll use rational arguments, even taken from the philosophical tradition. So that's another element that I want to get into. So there's lots to talk about, but the basic idea is that um, it'll be a kind of look at how medieval people thought you should form your beliefs, how you should use authority in forming your beliefs. And I'm trying to always kind of take lessons from these things um, that might seem relevant to us today, like we were just talking about a few minutes back. Mm -hmm. Well, so in closing, Peter, you also recently edited a new book that's going to be coming out soon called Philosophy and Jurisprudence in the Islamic World. So I wonder if just you could spend a couple minutes talking about sort of the project of that book, sort of what you envisioned for it, and kind of what you see as its contribution to this conversation. Yeah, actually, that just came out. So I literally got it two days ago. <laughs> I can now hold it in my hands. And that's a book that I edited for a press called De Greuter, which is here in Germany. And uh, so it's not written mostly by me. It's written by a bunch of my colleagues who are just looking at different aspects of jurisprudence in the Islamic world and how it relates to philosophy or alternatively looking at philosophical texts and how the juridical tradition influenced those texts. So I tried to get a combination of authors who are experts in the history of Islamic law and experts who are in experts in the history of Islamic philosophy and kind of get them both to think about how law gets into philosophical areas or how philosophy gets into legal areas. And some of the topics covered are things we've already discussed. Um, I think one of the really dominant themes is that when you start thinking about things like um, analogy, like we were talking about before, right? So the example with, I know grape wine is forbidden. Does that mean date wine is forbidden as well? Um, you really, you're, what you're talking about there is a theory of inference. So from a philosophical point of view, you're basically doing something like logic or philosophy of science almost. And a lot of the papers look at that kind of issue. So, for example, one of the papers is about um, whether you're allowed to infer from a given legal uh, stipulation that 
the converse case is not covered. So I can give you an example to make this clear. So there's a, uh, a legal judgment that sheep that are fed in a stall fall under a tax. And that's it. That's the judgment. Okay. So that is clear in the legal sources. So now the question is, does that imply that sheep that are not fed in a stall, so that are fed in fields, are not under the tax? Or does it just leave it open, whether the sheep fall under a tax, right? And um, not only do jurists talk about that specific example, but they sort of jump up to think about it as a more abstract problem, like, well, are inferences in general of that form going to be licit or not so that we can sort of solve all those problems at the same time. And then they start drawing on the resources of Aristotelian logic to discuss that. It's amazing. And the whole book's full of that kind of thing, sort of amazing cases where jurists are dealing with some really concrete issue and they start thinking about it at a more abstract level. And then they realize that they could use the resources of um, logic or other parts of philosophy like ethics to deal with these questions. And then conversely, you often see philosophers engaging with legal problems. Um, actually, the case of Averroes that we've been discussing is such a case, right? So there he's actually trying to say, what is the legal status of philosophy? Um, another example would be philosophers who think of jurisprudence as sort of analogous to ethics because they're both trying to establish various normative rules and then their question is, well, what is the difference between law and ethics, positive law and ethics, we might say, and what do they have in common? So that would be another case where um, law and philosophy kind of come together. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds fantastic. I'm going to have to suggest our library order a copy. And, um, and, and I must say, I am highly tempted to come up to Notre Dame for your talk when, when you come to deliver it there. Yeah, it's not that far, actually. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Well, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was an amazing episode and an incredible essay. And I really learned an awful lot from you. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure.